0: you listening to Millwall, broadcasting from the beautiful South Byrne, no Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to the return of, I hope, a welcome feature on Acton Millwall. It's the return of the random fixture shows, uh, one of my favourite. Um, so another thing, like the listed lines, listeners, that I'd rather let slip of late. Why is that? don't know, a bit of lack of energy, I suppose. Um, but I've been thinking about ways to try and reinvigorate the show, and I thought the old random fixtures from the past episodes that we used to do were always favourites uh, for me to produce. I hope favourites for you to to listen to. They're based on the idea that you, we use the random.org number generator, online generator, it gives us a year between 1885 and 2010 and based on that year we try and find a fixture roughly as close as possible to today's date but you know back in the random fixture year chosen today's year randomly chosen is actually 100 well actually it's 99 years ago just short of 100 years ago it's 1923 and we have two fixtures there are two weeks, uh, two two games played in the week of the 15th to the 22nd of December 1923. So 99 years ago, as we've said. And the way that the league used to organise their fixtures back then was kind of strange to the modern eye. They used to play um, a home fixture. In this particular case, we played Bristol Rovers at home on the 15th of December 1923. Uh, that was a 1-0 win for Millwall in front of 12,000 at Colblow Lane, and then they would play the return fixture at Bristol the week after. So, Saturday the 15th, we won 1-0 at the at the Den, and then seven days later, we went to Bristol, which I presume would be Eastville at this point, um, and we lost there 4-1, so we've gone from one extreme to the other, very, very Millwall, isn't it? And as you look through the course of the whole season, pretty much, we've won a two odd exceptions here and there it follows this home and away principle now I don't know why they used to do it like that, maybe anyone listening to the show can give us a bit of a spin on on why the league was was organised in this way back in those times Um, it's an interesting way, you you, you met the same team uh, twice in a week effectively, so that's how we beat Bristol at the Den Um, the game I'm going to focus on is that victory Millwall won Bristol Rovers Nil played on the 15th only really because we won it and the return fixture sounds like we got our um you know backside spanked at the at Bristol so I thought I'd focus on the win for me as this is a Millwall show and uh I, I get to choose how these random fixtures play out so I've chosen us winning uh, as I say 1-0 win for the lions our scorer was Morris uh, the team that took the field that day in front of 12,000 cold blow lane in goal crawford uh, jack fort and i believe that's richard hill in the two fullback positions uh, Pemberton, um archie Gom, I think his name is in this in midfield and and amos across the midfield three i think they were called half backs in the old formation it's a two-three five setup then up front on the wings we have Kingsley and Pither on the on the wings good name isn't it Piver and then the three forwards, Mule, Morris and Dillimore, And I'm going to come back to some of those names later. I do have a match report from the people, Sunday people, as it is now. But back then it was just called the people. Uh, this is the, the edition the day after on the Sunday, the 16th of December. Mill will improve, it says. Our first goal at home since October the 27th. So we had a bit of a run of, uh, you know, a, a desert-style dry run of no no goals. Mill won Bristol Rovers nil. With the near approach of the Cup ties, Mill's return to winning form at New Cross yesterday it was a happy event, says the people. They scored the only goal in a well-contested game with Bristol Rovers to register their first success since October the 27th. It was also their first goal at home since that date. Improved play certainly came from the London team, but weak finishing on the part of the forwards was, again, much in evidence. Or the victory might have been an overwhelming one. There's nothing new in this life, listeners. Um, couldn't score for Toffee back then. And, um, well, you know, you, you tell me whether that's, that's still so to this day. Now, as I say, the, the team that I've just named there would actually be the same team that would take the field the following week at Easterville, Bristol Rovers uh, a, a great old ground Eastville incidentally uh, I went there in 1977 which coincidentally was the uh, the game uh, we got beat there in 2-0 but that was the episode where um, the F Troop treatment and the halfway line the infamous Panorama documentary was filmed and I actually did get given a surgical mask how about that I, I lost it now I wish i kept it that would have been quite a historical artefact, wouldn't it? Um, but yeah, so Eastfield, it was, it was a greyhound stadium and quite um, quite strange because obviously the central um, part of the pitch, you know, was a pitch football pitch with an oval, I think they had a speedway track and certainly a dog track running around the outside of it. Um, the home end where the Bristol fans were was at the totalisator end. They had a huge um, series of dials, totalisator for those who don't know much about Gambling is a a kind of a a numbers-based system whereby you you find the most favoured, the shortest odds are the most favoured dogs. It's similar to what a bookmaker does in some ways, but it is literally based on ticket sales at various points around the ground. Um, It's also famous, Eastville, for having rose bushes as decorative features behind the goals, so you had nice little red roses. But we got spanked the week after for this 1-0 loss one nil win at Coalbrow Lane. We go to a four one loss. One week later, the Reynolds News, their correspondent using the pseudonym Westerner, reports um, the irresistible forwards of Bristol Rovers and Millwall muddled, muddled. Um, did Mill did not have a happy visit to Bristol? It says where they found the Rovers in irresistible form and suffered a defeat by four goals to one. And there's a, a kind of a subheading here: lack of power. So similar, really, I suppose, to the report coming from the home win where the forwards are criticised for lack of uh, decisiveness in front of goal and that continued all the way down there to uh, to, to Bristol. Um, incidentally, just as a as an aside, as a tangent, because we love a tangent on these shows, listeners, don't we? The report straight up next to the Westerners' um, account of uh, Bristol 4-1 mentions um, Cholton Athletic going playing at, at their new ground in Catford. They played at the Mount and it mentions their first match at their new ground at the Mount Catford, which did not produce very good football. So again, nothing nothing new there. That looks like it was a nil-nil draw. Um, inauspicious opening at Catford at Charlton's New Home, says Southerner as against Westerner. Um, that would be Mountsfield Park. For anyone that knows Catford, that was where the Cholton relocated from the valley to Mountsfield Park. Uh, I think it was a, an unhappy stay at the stadium, which there's no trace left now, I believe. Um but yeah they then returned back to back to the valley. Um anyway, that's a Cholton Cholton business, not something we want to talk about. So that was that was at the same time as Millwall um, winning one, losing one against Bristol Rovers. Uh, the win after, uh, then left us in seventh position, but we would finish third in Division Three South in this particular season under the management of the legendary Bob Hunter, our first Football League manager, and a noted figure. Neil and I have mentioned Bob Hunter a good few times over these shows, and his role as a coach, a scout... Um, What else do you want? A mentor on the Isle of Dogs. He organised athletic events at the Athletic Ground pre-First World War. Uh, He would continue in management as mill manager from us joining the Football League in 1921 and would actually uh, take us to championship glory in 1927 uh, and was building towards an assault on the second division and potentially in the early 1930s promotion to the promised land of the First Division. He sadly died in office, age 71, in 1933. And that was a huge blow to Millwall's ambitions. He's a major figure. Uh, This was one of his seasons in management, and he didn't do too badly, in all truth. This was two years into Millwall um, as a a football league club. Top of the table at the end of this particular season, which is 1923-24, would finish Portsmouth. Millwall, third, one place behind Plymouth. One point and one place behind Plymouth. Back in those far-off times, only the Championship side got promoted from the third division to the second division. So you had to basically win the league to get promoted. No playoffs, no no second position, no third position promotion. So the Lions, although they finished third and had a good season, uh, would have to wait until 1927. 26-27, to be champions of Division 3 South. Again, um, I think the Football League rather organised matters. They they essentially absorbed in the Division 3 South a lot of Southern League clubs and the same for the 3rd Division North. And they rather rigged it um, so that uh, the existing Football League clubs didn't suffer too much with relegation. Uh, So yeah, only the Championship side would actually get promoted and that would be... Portsmouth this particular season. Uh, top scorer for the Lions uh, was D Morris with 17 goals and Jay Dillimore was one behind 16 goals and then A. mule with 15. So in sequence there. So I thought I'd pick out one or two of the names that struck me from that uh, Millwall side. As I say, I'm, I'm looking at the uh, it's the same team for both games. In fairness, so makes no odds. whether I say, it's for the the winning team or the losing team. But it was the same side that uh, beat Bristol Rovers at the Den and then went down and got beat at Eastville. I've picked out a couple of names, three names, and for, using Neil Fisler's brilliant A to Z book, uh, the Millwall A to Z. I recommend it if you can get it on Amazon. It is a an essential item, and I find it an absolute uh, goldmine of information for doing these uh, random fixture shows. So I've picked out a quite a famous name, actually, Jim Dillimore, um, a striker inside forward, as uh, in the old termina- terminology. Uh, he played between 1922 and 26 for Millwall, uh, 110 games and 43 goals. And quite a sad story. I found this quite a sad account of a the cruelty of football listeners because, um, especially in these days, we're talking about 1923, you know, you had moments of glory and then you were forgotten as soon as as, as the, the game left you behind. And this is going to be Jim Dillimore's story. So just to outline, he was born in 1894 in Canning Town and would play for Millwall... For 110 games, as we said, scoring 43. Um, his career took in the wonderful name named club called Nome Athletic. You imagine them to be all short guys playing for Gnome Athletic. Then the Royal Garrison Artillery, Becton Town AFC, Custom House, all local size of where I am. Barking Town 1921, Millwall 1922. And then he would finish his career, footballing career, at Weymouth and Chatham. Um, and, then, oh, and Vickers, uh, which still exists, Vickers of Crayford, which was um, a munitions uh, machine gun, wasn't it? Vickers machine gun. And I think the club still exists as VCD. Uh, I think that's the descendant club of this particular side that Jim Dennymore uh, played for, Vickers of Crayford. Uh, and then a couple of Bedford and Grace Thurrock uh, making his debut versus Cholton on the 4th of November. 1922. So Jim Dillimore was a former railway porter. He worked his way up from the London Leagues and as the A to Z guide puts it, he possessed flair, close control and nimble footwork. He became part of a formidable Millwall forward line with Harry Morris and Alf Moule, M-O-U-L-E. We'll come back to Alf. He was all set for full international honours after taking part in an England trial, only to break his leg a week later after the England trial. Jim's career never really recovered, and he found work as a general labourer, but his football injury soon left him unable to work as that. And he was often seen outside the den on match days, begging for a few pennies. Um, that's a sad way to finish. I did a little digging on Jim Dillimore on his name. So he's gone from football glory and potentially an England cap to being injured, breaking his leg, which was a remains a huge you know, moment in a footballer's career, doesn't it? Back then, it was pretty much a career end, and that's largely how it worked for him. But just as a, I don't know, a postscript, if you want, um, Jim Dillymore is, is recorded in the uh, local newspaper over this side where I am. The Ilford Recorder, 1957. 1957, it says, an ex-footballer turned busker, so he's finished up busking on the streets, was awarded £157 in damages against London Transport as a result of an unfortunate accident on ilford high road jim Dillimore, a former millwall star turned street musician was hit by a 148 bus as he busked from his licensed spot on the high street after treatment for head and shoulder injuries at king george hospital he was allowed to go back to his home but he was instructed he should not go outside until september uh, familiar to ilford shoppers thousands of ilford shoppers Um, An Ilford recorded article about Mr. was used as crucial evidence within the trial to indicate how much money the victim was able to make each day. Uh, Jim had initially sued for 400. He got 157 from the court after this uh, uh, impact with a bus. Um, There we are. I used to, incidentally, as a complete tangent, I used to have an uncle, family mythology, who made a living out of... um, Rolling over car bonnets and making insurance claims. Um, I never knew if this was a true story, but I think he also would was quite averse to. Um, uh, he'd worked as a stunt man in films, and uh, he would often deliberately, semi-deliberately, fling himself, bounce off of London transport buses to make claims. I think maybe London transport back then was a a source of income for. The, uh, you know those that have fallen upon tough times, and that would include Jim Dillymore. In James Murray's masterful book, The uh, Lions of the South, it does mention a song, which I will attempt to sing for you listeners. Uh, it also has a description of Jim Jim Dillymore, five foot nine and a canning town born. Uh, he had in his own lifetime become a legend, says Jim Murray. He emerged as one of the Lions' best forwards in many years and was not only useful at tucking goals away, But unselfishly and skilfully setting them up for his colleagues, and he was a favourite with the crowd. Um, Jim's mother, uh, so the author's own mother, as he puts it, remembers as a young girl in the 1920s skipping in the playground of her school at the Elephant and Castle to the tune of the Pompey chimes Play up Millwall, uh, play up Millwall, can't play football. Oh, yes, we can, we beat West Ham. What was the score? One, two, three, four. Who scored the four? It was old Dilly Moore, blonde-haired and always the last out of tunnel. Dilly Moore was the second top scorer in this particular season. Um, And apologies for the singing. It wasn't really singing, it was more rapping, wasn't it? Um, But what a sad story. He would finish up busking and having to make claims of sorts against London Transport for a few quid. Um... There we are. That's the story of Jim, Jim Dillimore, James Dillimore. I've also picked out from Neil's book another name that struck me was Gom, Archie Gom, G-O-W-M, centre half, two hundred and twenty-six games and twenty goals for Millwall, uh, nineteen twenty to nineteen thirty-one. Now Archie was born in Beaconsfield and uh, in eighteen ninety-seven would pass away in High Wycombe, nineteen seventy. He played for Wycombe Wanderers as an amateur for Reading. Joined Millwall as an amateur and would turn professional before finishing his career at uh, Carlisle and and Lancaster. Made his debut against Reading in May 1921 in a 2 0 win. Archie Archie Gom, who won representative honours with the London Combination and Spartan League, joined the Dockers after serving a ban for being sent off in the Bucks Charity Cup final. Now, my eye fell upon that. I'm going to come back to that. Um, Archie Gom was a real spoiler. He spent most of his time at centre half, but would move to inside right whenever Bill Bryant was around. Archie made only three appearances during Mill's nineteen twenty-eight Division Three South promotion-winning campaign, and he was a London FA uh, Challenge Cup finalist the following season. He was a cabinet maker. He remained friends with the long-serving Mill groundsman Elijah Moore, another huge name. Listeners, Elijah Moore's huge name in Mill history was groundsman. Um, for the rest of his life, and he would uh, Archie would serve with the Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire Light Infantry, the Ox and Bucks, during World War One. Um, Archie gone now. As I said, my eye fell upon that story of him getting a ban, and I found on a Wickham Wanderers on the Wickham Wanderers website actually an account of the particular game. This was the Berkshire and Buckinghamshire Charity Cup final played at Aylesbury in March 1920. Um, between um, Wickham and and it looks like Chesham. Chesham were leading 1-0 with just seven minutes to go, remaining when centre-half Archie Gom was sent off for a foul and a large number of Wickham fans invaded the pitch in protest at the decision. The game was subsequently abandoned and the cup was awarded to Chesham. It would be Gom's last appearance for the Chairboys as he signed for Millwall in the summer. No wonder he was a hit with the Lions fans, that's all we can say. Um, and last but not least, last but not least, Alf Mule, M-O-U-L-E, Mule, not Mule, but Mule, was an inside forward, played in these, these two games, the 1-0 win, the 4-1 loss against Bristol, that we're talking about. Um, would play 234 games for Millwall, for the Lions, scoring 75 goals across the years of 1919, 1927. Another canning town boy, born in 1894, he died in a place called Somting, in the uh, I don't know where that is. Somting in 1973, his career took him West Ham, the Corinthians, Catford South End. There's a name. I think that was a team that combined with Cholton, Actually, when they moved to Catford, we've already mentioned that. Uh, Millwall, Norwich, player manager at Margate, and also coached later at Lansing College. Um, Alf was an outstanding footballer. It says uh, with superb control and an excellent range of passes. He appeared for the Professionals against the Amateurs in an England trial match at Highbury in March 1925 and played for the FA. Uh, he was seen as the brains of a Mule attack. This is uh, from Neil's book, um, and was the leading scorer in three of his seven seasons. He was also, interestingly, Alf Mueller, a fine cricketer, who, as a youngster, had batted um, uh, with WG Grace for Essex and for Devon. He was an engine-turner by trade and served as a professional uh, with Plymouth Cricket Club, coaching at Falmouth. And then in later life, he coached football and cricket for Lansing College. He also had a brother who served as a spell. And his his Wikipedia entry mentions his football career. um, Shoreham. He died in Shoreham, by Sea, Sussex. But it mentions his uh, first-class cricket career as well as his football career, um, which is a fantastic... Fantastic story. So that's Alf Samuel Mool, 1894 to 1973. First-class cricketer with Devon and Essex, as well as being a footballer with a number of clubs, including Mool. He scored a half-century against the touring West Indian side in 1923. Um, for all you cricket fans out there. Uh, there we are. Um, that's the the Millwall, um account. I thought it's sometimes interesting. I don't know if you want this kind of stuff. You tell me, listeners. Do feedback on your thoughts on the random fiction. But I always love to look at the front page of the newspaper when um, I was reading the back page for the uh, the info on Millwall, but you have to look at the front page. I always start with the back page, but then I turn around and see what's on the front page uh, to see what was going on in this particular weekend in uh, December the 16th, 1923. This is The People... As I said, it will become the Sunday people later in life, but here it's just builders, the people. The big headline, Franco-German negotiations. Monsieur Poincaré meets Herr von Hirsch to discuss a new Ruhr and Rhineland regime. Um, now, this follows the end of the First World War. I'm not going to go terribly deeply into this story. Um, at the end of the First World War, there was a Treaty of Versailles, which effectively looked to try to... Uh, force the defeated German government um, to pay reparations to the Allies, mainly France, Britain to some extent, Belgium to some extent, for the damage that had been caused by the war, which was blamed upon the Germans for beginning. And as part of the reparations regime, the industrial region called the Ruhr, I don't know if anyone's listening has ever been to the Ruhr or passed it, or driven through it, And it is highly industrial. Um, It was the engine room of the German economy. It remains so to this day. And it was taken under French control as a means of trying to extract money to help reconstruct France that had been damaged during the course of the First World War. And in this particular newspaper, um, there's clearly... um, Argy-bargy is beginning. That's a good, not really very professional term, but argy-bargy is beginning... Um, The Germans not wanting to pay the reparations. It would become an eternal needle in the side of the German um, psychology through the 1920s. It would give the rise of Hitler uh, fuel. Um, And in actual fact, because the Germans were so um, keen to reduce their their reparation payments, because they were running into the hyperinflation of the 1920s, um, it would force the French, or the French chose to, uh, actually send troops in to occupy the Ruhr region, Rhineland region. Um, later on this particular I think in 1924, they would do that. So it would become a constant thorn in the side of uh, the kind of uneasy peace that settled on Europe after the end of the First World War. Uh, Elsewhere, just looking across the... one, um, well, I love these old newspapers. There's a great advert for something called Christian Salts. This is like good health for a farthing a day. It looks like it's something you put in your... Like a tea, salt tea, fancy drinking that. Um, and it livens you up. A bit like Andrew's Liver Salts, all you older listeners out there. Elsewhere, we've got the government in turmoil in the House of Commons. A lib- Liberal Labour um, Pact in the offing. Um, this Mr. Ramsay Macdonald, who would later become Prime Minister, is looking to um, form a government. This would be the first Labour minority government that would come in time after these these uh, reports here, and also um, boxing uh, the Great White Hope, who is a, a a boxer by the name of Ingham Ingle In Ingle in- Ingle in- Ingl- 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 Um Ingle Ingle, something. The print is very smudged. Uh, beaten. Knocked out in seconds. Uh, the Great White Hope hits the deck again. That will become a regular feature of um, the boxing world, wouldn't it? Um, the Great White Hope. Also, um, oh, there's a happy... Oh, that's this nice. The happy ending to an old romance. A gold wedding. Uh, boyish escapade. Ooh, with a widow. Uh, this is the uh, the bride and bride. You know, the... the Earl of Kinnell. Never heard of him. Never heard of him. But there we are. That's the front page of the people. Big serious stuff. Uh, boxer bashed up. Uh, Labour trying to form a government with the Liberals. And a bit of a flibbertigibbet story about some Earl of Kinnell uh, running off with a widow. Um, the papers don't change, dear listeners, do they? Um, I hope you've enjoyed... This little foray into the uh, random fixtures: Millwall one, Bristol Rovers nil on the fifteenth of December. One week later, uh, Bristol Rovers four, Millwall one at the Eastfield Stadium. There we are. If you've enjoyed this, uh, this, this, what should we call it? Soliloquy, monologue. Do let me know. I love to hear from people. If you have any uh, random fixtures you'd like me to research. Do uh, give me a shout. I'm not wedded to the idea of it being totally random. I will, like a wedding DJ, I will do requests. Give me a shout if there's any fixtures that grab you that you'd like me to look into. Um, we'll look at the players, the personalities, and the incidents and the news around that particular time because football, dear listeners, does not exist in a bubble. It exists in its wider world. There we are. actung Random Fixtures, 1923. I thank you for listening um, I'm just going to try and put this out tomorrow, if, uh, in which case I want to wish all listeners, all Achtung Millwall listeners, a very, very happy Christmas. Enjoy it with your families. Have a good time. And we'll be back very, very soon. Until then, Arriva Dirty Millwall. Bye for now. Millwall.